0: Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week, our Family Resources Editor, Amy Biancoli, will be talking with Dr. Susan Swim, who is an expert in collaborative dialogical practices and a researcher with a special interest in family reunification. But before we get into the discussion, I wanted to mention how you can support our work. Madden America is a non-profit, and we've been providing free-to-access content since 2012. You can help by donating to allow us to continue our mission to rethink psychiatry in the US and around the world. To donate, just visit madinamerica.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support. And now on to the podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Amy Biancoli, family editor for Mad in America. And we have two guests today on the podcast. One is Susan Swim executive director of the Now I See a Person Institute, which she created in 2007 to provide therapy and counseling to kids, teens, adults, families, and others who haven't found healing in the usual approaches to therapy and treatment. From its base in Los Angeles County, the Institute provides both in-person services, including equine therapy, and virtual sessions, and offers training as well. An expert in collaborative dialogical practices, Dr. Susan Swim is also a researcher whose topics include family reunification, helping people recover from trauma after previously unsuccessful treatments, and process ethics, which she has described as, quote, what is right and good for every client in therapy, close quote. She's also on the faculty of the Houston Galveston Institute, where she first started teaching in the early 1980s. In the past, she worked for the Taos Institute and taught at Loma Linda University in California. She's written extensively on many topics and is the former editor of the Journal of Systemic Therapies. Our other guest today is the father of a daughter who was first hospitalized at age 13 and endured years of psychiatric treatment, diagnoses, drugs, and more hospitalizations before embarking on a path to healing at the Institute. The father will remain anonymous. So to the both of you, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation, which is just so important.
2: Thank you, Amy.
3: Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for being here. So I want to start off with a question for you, Dr. Swim, just to define something so that people listening will know what you're talking about. The term collaborative dialogical practice. Uh, That's what you do at the Institute. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with these different approaches, could you define it? And could you describe it in everyday terms, what that
2: is? Collaborative dialogical practices used to be called collaborative language systems approach. And it was a type of theoretical, we called it a theoretical posture that we developed in the early 80s. And it was along with various other theorists, clinicians in the field that we all came together and were trying to understand how we could. Work with people in a different way than what was kind of traditional and diagnosing and treating somebody. Our, our premises were that the diagnoses and the deficiency language around the diagnoses led to more trauma than the original trauma that people came in for. So there were a lot of people at that point in time doing research about this and studying this. And the basic premises were that through conversation and relationships, people get better. And thro- it's through normal everyday conversations that do not contain um, um, even words that describe people in deficient ways. So if someone comes in for, for our services and I use the word kind of therapy" loosely because where I think that some of us are trying to get away from even calling us therapists or, or healers or any of those types of things. But for people who want to engage in helping people overcome hopelessness and severe obstacles, we work with them as, as people. We talk with them in common language. We don't say "Hi." I heard your story. I think you're bipolar. And and this is something that you're going to have to uh, understand that you're going to be limited through life, but you can find techniques to help you with it. Instead, those conversations never take place. Our conversations are client-led and what they feel is going on with them. And so most of the time, those are conversations of pain and hopelessness. And collaboratively, collectively, we generate new meaning the participants that are talking about the suffering
1: thank you for explaining that so my follow-up question for you is also a question for the father who's with us which is how does that play out um how for the father how did your daughter your family experience this how was it different from the usual treatments your daughter got and Maybe before you get into that, um, and cause I really would like to hear your view of what happens at, at, at the Institute. And, and I'd like to hear both of you discussing how it's actually different and how it plays out. But to lead into that, if you could tell us a little bit about your daughter's backstory and her difficulties, what she had gone through and then what her treatments were and how it was different at the Institute.
3: Well, first started this from the school. She had some friends and so forth. Uh, The school want her to uh, go to a psychiatric hospital, actually. Uh, That was the beginning of the, that was the beginning. And once she goes over there and meets other uh, people, of course, now they put her on medication. My daughter starts finding other uh, people that have issues and they get to educate each other with the wrong ideas. And that's how it started. And there was never ending, never ending hospital after hospitalization, medication, different medications that never healed her. And I was seeing the changes in her all the time all the time, different medications, different doctors. Four years ago, I met Dr. Swim and her team, and I called her, it was right before the the COVID. So we started taking my daughter to that horse ranch, and she felt really good at, at that time. Till COVID came up, and they had to close the place, and then things start getting worse again, but she was getting better at the uh, her institute. But we continued, me and my wife, we continued. And then my daughter got uh, bad again. And again, hospitalization after different hospitalization. uh, Remember, every time they go to hospital, they start finding new ideas because they start meeting new friends and they get to get educated. But uh, about, uh, I'm going to say, almost two years ago, things start changing towards better when the COVID opened up we start going back to the uh, ranch and she really liked the horses of course uh, animals because it's nature and she's a nature person she always has been when she was a kid and uh it's a beautiful life right now we have and she's back to herself like my daughter how i used to know when she was a kid she always uh, is a helping person want to help others i wish you could see her now she helps people uh she goes to churches now uh and we're so happy we have we have our family back and it's a beautiful thing that is beautiful and i i'm curious about
1: Your daughter's entry into the system, was she going through, what was the distress that first signaled to people around her, uh, whether it was teachers or, 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 or whoever it was that she required treatment? Like what was her initial distress and what was her initial diagnosis? Because what you described, so many people, like a cascade of drugs and diagnoses is just so tragically common and it usually starts with just one. So what what was it that that triggered it?
3: So the beginning was the bullying from the school actually. Supposedly she was gonna hurt herself. That's what they heard from the school. That, of course the school doesn't listen to the bully you know, uh they don't do anything about it. And they want to uh hospitalized because she wanted to hurt herself. So that's what when the 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 law came in uh as an uh police I'm going to say they really uh, removed that uh, removed her from my house uh for 72 hour hold and that was the beginning and that was the beginning of all the bad things start happening to her.
2: Well, thank thank you for explaining that. You know, I moved here in 2002 and we started working with a lot of Children that were, were very hopeless when we opened up the institute, it just kind of coincided. And what, what happens is that these children tell a friend, right, that I, I thought about hurting myself. But there's no means, no plans, no intent, but there's a zero tolerance policy. So when a teacher or a counselor or any school personnel, then it's very easy for these children to be hospitalized. Because they don't know they're going to be hospitalized. And they're taken away from school sometimes in a police car and they're put into holding cells at local hospitals. So a lot of times these are locked rooms where the children go into. They're 12 or 13, they can't see their parents, they're crying for their parents. And then because of the reactions, not only from the screening at the school, but what happens at the psychiatric facility holding area, that those symptoms are seen as very escalated, right? And so then something that might've been going to school one day, talking to a friend now has a massive major diagnosis and treatment. And I think this was something similar to what this family found themselves in very rapidly, and they weren't really prepared for the loss of autonomy in trying to help their own child.
3: Actually, that's exactly what happened, Dr. Smith. Uh Because of, uh, she says, he says from the school, and uh, the school district heard it, and uh, they put on a psych ward. For a 72-hour hold, that was the beginning.
1: So what you're describing is a situation in which teachers and administrators are making a decision for your daughter based on something that somebody heard, but then they're not listening to you as the father. And I'm I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, that probably your daughter didn't really feel heard. And is that does that point to the significance of having a conversation with the young person in distress? And is that what now I see a person institute is trying to prioritize? Like I just to see, literally see that young person as a human being, as a person.
3: Exactly, that's what it was actually We didn't have no uh, say so They didn't listen to us, that's it The law came, they have the power To do whatever they want And that's what they did uh, They didn't listen to us we, No matter what we said, even our Minister came at our house, she, he was With us, they didn't listen They just took her away, we have to Hold her 72 hours And exactly at the, They took her uh, The Holdings, like not a uh, jail, but it looks like a jail, 72-hour holding cell, and there you go. That was the beginning. Yes. I don't know if
2: anybody knows the—I'm sure your listeners know the the trauma that's involved in this, and a young child being put in a police car, taken and locked up, not being able to be with their parents, told that they're a diagnosis and that they're mentally ill, and— it's insinuated that their parents did something wrong. Just 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 the very nature of separating the parents starts to chisel down that trust between the child and the parents versus the child and kind of the new parental role models who are the mental health professionals or the clinicians. And this is not this is not in any way an isolated incident. And the parents automatically, unfortunately, are suspect that they did something wrong, that they did something negligent. When you have a young person and this happens to them, and then the whole self-identity is kind of so shaky. What they had known one day is much different than what they knew the next day. And people try to say it's due to the trauma, right? Due to the trauma of what had happened before, but it's a bit... In our eyes, it's the trauma of the treatment. The treatment is so severe that they they kind of, it's like being caught in a riptide. They don't know what's up, but they don't know what's down. They don't know who to trust. They are so fragile. And in that fragility, they're hopeless that life is ever going to get better. And they eventually just do want to kill themselves because the pressure of living every day is, is so difficult. And, and what happens when you're hospitalized rapidly. So a lot of our clients will be put in a hospital and then out for a couple of months, put back in, out for a couple of, And by that time they are seen as not being able to get well. They want to put them in residential that because they can, and they have to be have conservatorship because they will not be able to take care of themselves. And in talking with all of our clients, they have this history of what happened when they entered into the mental health field. And it was, they thought they were going to have someone to talk to, to support them, to kind of comfort them, and not that they were going to lose, learn a completely new language that describes themselves, the world, and their family. In our states and most states, whenever a child is is hospitalized, there's an automatic report to the Department of Children and Family Services. And so can you imagine if you have so many hospitalizations, how many times the Department of Children and Family Services is called in?
1: I would like to ask about the nature of trust, which is a word uh, you use, Dr. Swim. And it seems from what I've read, about the Institute and listening to your podcast, it seems like building trust is a huge piece of what you do. How difficult is it to to acquire and and maintain, to encourage trust with someone like the daughter that that the father here is describing and also the father with parents. I mean, after having been through all of this systemic difficulty, trauma uh, with the system, how do you manage to convey to these people that uh, we're not going we're not going to judge you we're going to listen to you we're going to let you direct this conversation how do you do
2: that so maybe the person uh, that was a participant in the trusting relationship would like to go first
3: family has to stick together family has to get involved to be able to save their kids uh, it's it uh, has to be whole it can't be just one person. Uh, that's how we built because we got educated, we got, uh, we learned. Now we're uh, coaches right now.
2: And I'm going to kind of bounce off of that because I love what you just said. You know, you know, at first we started doing this with with horses, and one of the things that on that first day I knew that we had something profound happening is that. When you go into a horse ranch and you're dressed with a pair of jeans and a pair of boots and, and a shirt, and everybody else is casually dressed, it very much evens everything. It's not like that. even though that there's inherent power and in hierarchy, it's not screaming and yelling at you. You you come into a normal, ordinary place where everybody is the same except people are suffering more than others. And there's, there's an abundance of, of ordinary things just to talk about, like the horses or squirrels or rabbits or, oh, my goodness, just it's endless, the conversations. And it goes so much with our theoretical presence of not being on problem talk, of not being talking about deficiency all the time. Because that deficiency is, is just a little bit of who we are. We are so many other people than those things that happen to us. This isn't psychoanalysis. by So by repeating it over and over again, that somehow you're going to feel better about something. Um, this is about having real life conversations with everybody about how each person is suffering. And how each person wants to be able to have a different type of path, a different way of participating in the world, both individually and with each other. And so that's why we incorporate a therapeutic team. Because this is hard to do for one person, is to honor and hold all of these narratives. And we do see that as that we're honoring the person because we are hearing things that perhaps they've never spoken out loud before. This is a very... we. we, We have called it sacred conversations in the terms of process ethics, because whatever somebody utters is sacred to them. And so we want to have the reverence to meet that sacred space where generative conversations can occur. And so if I'm thinking back to how this trusting relationship evolves, just being in what we call out of the office, it occurs just like it does if you met somebody in a restaurant You know, Lynn Hoffman used to call it kitchen table talk. Like, you know how you go to a family and let's just say the family's getting along well and, and people are talking right and left. There's not rote ways of doing anything. We don't replicate one client with another client. We do not replicate one session with that client and think that the next session is going to have even the same themes is all client driven on what they want to see happen. The therapist's ego has to take has to be very deflated in favor of what these people want to talk about. Even though I went to college for more than 12 years, I don't care. Those things don't matter. What matters is that the person that's suffering is going to be able to get some type of alleviation. And you never know how that's going to happen because The pathway from that comes from the participation of everyone. I think the other thing is that because we are so different and, and how we just from the first few minutes engage with people that, that automatically there's this, this wanting to trust the newness that, that is there.
3: Yeah, that's very true. Actually. Uh, uh, it's very true. Again, uh, at the beginning, we weren't that uh jazzed about it uh because we seen so many different psychiatrists psychologists uh and nothing was working uh, but in the first second week, we really enjoyed it uh because honestly my daughter seen uh, liked it and we seen the the change in her. The calmness, of course, maybe it was the horses, but definitely horses had something to do with it. So I,
2: I was just talking about a little bit of what I was kind of thinking about in terms of why do people trust us if they've had other situations where things did not go the way that they wanted to. And and I said, I think possibly because because of the way that we are not talking about the problems, but getting to know everyone's kind of getting to know each other. You're getting to know us. We're getting to know you. We're having like ordinary conversations, not, not therapeutic conversations so much, or what people would call therapeutic conversations.
1: So you saw a difference in your daughter
3: pretty quickly then. Oh, definitely very quickly. Actually first and the second week. Yeah. That's remarkable. And I'm just, it was, was
1: it, because, as you said, she she really liked the horses. But did she get a sense that she was being heard, like she was being again heard and seen? Was that what was that the difference?
3: Yes, and she couldn't wait till to go. It was Wednesday we used to go. Uh, she put her boots on because uh, you know there's horses there, and she wanted to feed the horses. But it wasn't an office visit; it was outside visit, and uh, it was. I don't think it was the Uh, the building or so forth i think it was the people she was being heard Uh, she really enjoyed it yes she did i i seen it that's remarkable
1: and so dr swim i'm i'm curious you had written about um not knowing as a big piece of it um and, and the humility that's required and and i realize that this is was maybe part of uh, a significant part of the, f- the founding, like the origin story of Now I See a Person Insti- Institute. If you could address that a, a little bit right now, like how you came to this understanding of what actually would be healing for people and uh, what your hopes were from the beginning when you founded the Institute.
2: So, I always say that I was very fortunate to be at the right place in the right time when I was going through my um, graduate school. And it was a time where you read books like Psychotherapy, The Hazardous Cure, that people got better at a waiting list than going in for therapy. It was a time where you were critical of research. You know, you were taught to see how research kind of tried to present what they thought they should present even before the research was started. So it was a time of, of, I don't want to call it enlightenment, but maybe logic. And it was also a time where marriage and family therapy was just starting. It was just budding and marriage and family therapy never focused on a diagnosis. It focused on the system and how to help the system. And so when we had the opportunity, when I had the opportunity to open up a nonprofit, that was just on a whim. And I started with a couple of horses and uh, my students at the university that I was teaching at. And I remember on the first day that we were there with the horses, and I, and I had owned horses all my life, so I had an idea that this was going to go well. And it was like night and day. It was night and day. The type of authentic, Generative relationships that happen in a naturalistic environment that doesn't yell "clinician" was massive, and then um, you know the horses were you know I always said it was it was like it was good for the horses because they were were actually older horses they were our family pets and so they're getting people that are wanting to pet them loving on them talking to them and um, so and then. It's enjoyable for us to be out there because people are in such good nature, even though they're having such suffering going on. It's like that little moment in time that gives them respite. And that respite then just is such, it generates them to their whole lives. And so that's what we've been doing since 2007. With, With COVID, we couldn't go to the horse ranch, unfortunately. And so we started doing what we call out of the office. So we would go into people's backyards or telehealth or meet at parks or anywhere that does not scream pathology, deficiency language.
1: And, and Dr. Swim, this is going to sound like a really, really basic question, but I'm just curious, is the ultimate aim what you're doing is just trying to help people figure out how to be happy? I mean that again. That sounds like so basic, but is that ultimately what 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 you're after?
2: Yes, we have to get close enough to understand the type of pain that people are, are going through, so that we can all talk together on how that pain can be alleviated. You're not; it's not from a script of of a theoretical treatment plan. You know, I was around when everybody was kind of making the theories, right and the, and theories were never meant to be like followed in steps of you do a b c and then you go this way and then you come back you know they were just ideas of what we can do to be helpful with people but but what i see with especially younger students is that this the theory gives them so much self confidence that they can't see the client because they're just seeing the theory and so it's not it's not about bashing clinicians. It, it's just the way that they've been taught. And, and, and I, think, I think that what we want to do is offer training to clinicians that helps them to see people, that helps them to be able to listen because my friend Tom Anderson used to talk about this. Listening always involves prejudice. It's so easy to have prejudice in our minds. You know, I always talk about we have to be in the conversation. This this is not a field to take lightly. It's not just to have that 45 minutes and then get paid by the insurance company and get the next person in. You know, we're dealing with life and death situations here. And so we need to, to know how to listen. And for me, I know I'm not listening if I have other ideas that are coming up. Like if I'm getting frustrated with somebody, we need to ask ourselves, why am I frustrated? What's happening? And then we can answer and say, well... Maybe I'm worried about them or maybe this or that. And then you can bring that into the conversation. It can be an honest, transparent, genuine process. I'm worried about you. How are we going to make sure that you're safe? A
1: two-way human conversation that acknowledges the complexity of the other person. Yeah, that makes so much sense hearing you describe it.
2: I just had one more thing that I thought was important. This child was taken away for a year while they were watching TV. And and they, I don't know this story as well as they do. And they were placed in foster care. And then they were placed in residential treatment. And residential treatment wanted this father to take conservatorship because this child would never get well and would be a risk to themselves and to their family. I don't know if you could, like, talk about that.
3: It's so true. That's what happened. I remember that uh, somebody uh, from the CFS comes. uh, It was about one o'clock and knocks on the door. I open up the door. I said, what are you doing? She goes, well, we heard something. I said, heard what? And she opens up a case that my eyes were red. Well, I'm a father. My daughter has been in a hospital. I just took her out of the hospital. I haven't slept very well. My eyes are red, and uh, she tells the court system that my eyes were uh, red. Uh, maybe I was on medication. Just after that, the CFS removed her uh, from our house. We cried so much. We didn't have no cho- We didn't have a, a chance uh, to argue or this that, and uh, she got taken away. And she was about an hour and a half away. Uh, it was very suffering. And after that, she went to the residential. And the court system put her in the residential for s- almost six months. We were, uh, finally, after two months, we had visitation to go visit her once a week. Almost a year, that's what we did. Uh, it was terrible, terrible, very terrible time that we had.
1: So essentially, they took your daughter
3: away. Because you were so exhausted that you had red eyes? So that le- actually psychiatrist called at the CFS that there was an issue at home. At 1 o'clock or 1.30, she came and knock on the door. Just Somebody's banging on the door. It uh, uh, was called. Uh, I remember that night. And supposedly, she says in a, uh, in a court filing that my eyes were red. You know, I'm not doing no drugs, I don't do drugs. That's what I say, how the system uh, works. Uh, unfortunately, this is this, our system. That's how the kids, they get taken away, and these, a lot of kids, they get lost in the system. We're one of the lucky uh, people, and I am lucky. I thank God, thank Dr. Swim, but we got lucky, waited for the court, and they gave us permission to take her to the uh, facility. Uh, residential uh, and everybody was getting released from that facility after a month uh, but they kept it almost uh, five six months then we after like i said two three months later we got a right visitation on Saturdays. so we every saturday we were going to visit her and after that uh, we had to be in another system for about three months
2: i think it's important to know that they wanted to, the parents to take conservatorship of this child.
3: They did. And I almost, uh, we almost thought about it. And I and I did talk to somebody, like I'm talking right now, and he goes, are you sure about this? This is not the right thing. And did you, you,
1: well, your daughter is doing much better now. You said she's not on medications, and she's also in college right now,
3: right? All together in the last five years. She did a whole three sixty. Well, so you, as a father, this whole experience must have been incredibly difficult. Not just for me, my wife, she suffered a lot. Uh, we all suffered, all of us, not just my daughter, uh, not just my wife or me, all my, uh, my, all of us suffered. Of course, terrible, terrible. But we got lucky. We there was a uh, we seen the light and the tunnel. And our faith kept us going, uh, and we're here now.
1: That was really powerful. Thank, thank you so much for um, describing
2: that. I would like to say that this is something that is not common, but I have been in the field since 1983, and um, it's 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 very common. You know, when you're when you're talking, I think with other participants, that it was something that one day there's a pet team coming to the school and the child is removed from school and put into a situation that is very scary and then doesn't often i'm not talking just about this case but cases in general they don't know who to trust right do they trust their parents do they trust the clinicians who are very very convincing about what is happening and pretty soon These children are very, very confused. And it's a journey for the whole family of um, reuniting and and how that reunification can occur. And for us, this is an example, and I hate to say this, of probably the majority of clients that, that we do see. When we first see our clients, we have a lot of hope because we have seen these types of situations over and over and over again, but they go through a lot of trauma that within a system that's supposed to be a little bit different. We see these, these families as heroes and heroines, you know, and they're able to have like this, this family that, that we're referring to, they're amazing. They're they're wonderful. They're loving. You know, every now and then I'll hear from the family members just about all sorts of different ordinary things that are happening and great and and things like that. But they also these types of situations can go in a different direction with the the same the same narratives. And um, when this gentleman is talking about, you know. What, every time he said I had forgotten about this or I had forgotten about that, it made me joyful because these are very difficult times that, that they went through not being able to, to parent or to be seen for as a person, uh, like the name of our institute.
1: So what, both of you, this is a question for both of, both of you, what would you,
3: do you say to other parents to give them hope? Parents should be a parent first. Spend more time with your kids, listen to them. And uh probably if you have rights, don't fall in the system. Don't have a big ego as a parent that I'm right, you're just a kid. No, you have to listen to them. Uh it would help a lot, I think. Again, in our situation, we didn't have that much right. You know, unfortunately. You got to fight in this one. Uh, it's almost a uh, fighting situation with the system. And don't give up. Uh, no matter what, uh, don't just uh, believe the psychiatrist. And probably if my daughter was got taken away when she was 13, I really doubt that we could have got her back because she was... Almost 17, she was going to be 18. When she. they put her in a facility at the end, they had to release it. The court had to release it. They go, okay, she's going to be 18 in three months. Okay, you have to do this, this, this. If she was young, much younger, we wouldn't be this lucky probably. I really mean it bottom of my heart. But again, uh, have don't lose your faith. That's it. Thank you.
2: So, so this is the type of work we've been doing for 40 years, a long time. I age myself every time I say that. And the majority of our clients transcend. They heal. Their children come back. I'd say most of our clients do not continue on medication. Our clients do not continue to be hospitalized. Our clients... Um, we, we call it now that they're redesigning their lives in the way that they want to redesign their lives in. Um, it's, it, we don't see ourselves as therapists or psychologists or clinicians that that we have the right to do that redesigning, <laughs> that this is for the families to do. And so, um, you know, I think that that it gets very complex because I do kind of know the history in this case. And I think back to that time of of a a very young child being hospitalized, if that hadn't have happened, there would have been a a completely different outcome. So it's, it's, it's just a very, very complex situation. And we have, I see these clients as heroes and heroines. Um, You know, if you're, if you're thinking about five or six years that, that you did, you weren't able to have that self agency to to parent your child in the way that you would want to that you're always kind of afraid that you're going to lose your child that's a very hard way to live, but I know especially for the people involved in in the, in the story that we've been talking about today it's a wonderful outcome everybody's super happy we We get to hear um college graduations and and like amazing wonderful things and it's it's you know things can turn around so incredibly rapidly as well, and so I guess my hope is that people do not lose hope.
1: That's terrific. That both of you, our guests today were Susan Swim, executive director of the Now I See a Person Institute, and a father whose daughter found help and healing there. You can find out more about the institute at nowiseaperson Thank you so much, the both of you, for this conversation. It was really powerful.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.